This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. It is a joyous, at the same time, a sad moment. This is the end of In Hindsight. It's been quite a journey. The last episode, number 21, title came to me, Ontario Made Me, Calgary Adopted Me. That pretty well summarizes what's happened in my academic career. I've been so fortunate to really have two homes. So what I'd like to do today, in the last episode, is just review, well, really, particularly my first arrival in Calgary and my introduction to my new home. We'll start in mid-August 1974. That really is almost exactly 49 years ago. I came to Calgary on the eve of an anniversary. I didn't know this at the time when I left Toronto. But when I got here, I learned, progressively, that Calgary was on the verge of an important anniversary. Its 100th anniversary had been founded as a police post in 1875, and the city was planning a commemoration of that event. The University of Calgary itself, at this point, if you go back to my episode one, where I review the department, the founding of it by George Self, the history of it. It now, in 1974, was eight years old. And the one faculty, the core faculty, was Faculty of Education. This now had expanded to 10 faculties, the last being law, which had just come in that year. So it had become a, a really substantial university. The university was part of the celebrations, or wanted to be. So certainly the Department of History did. In fact, Tony Rasperich and Henry Claussen, my new colleagues in the Department of History, were beginning uh, underway discussions with the Historical Society of Alberta, Chinook Country Chapter, about doing a joint event. They were talking with Dave Coots and Grant Weber, executive people with the Chinook Country Chapter, about doing a conference. That conference would come off in May next year, 1975, and it was a big success. Fortunately, there was a very attractive, well-presented volume brought out by McClellan and Stuart West after the conference, and it was entitled Frontier Calgary, Town, City, and Region. The book itself, very well edited by Tony and Henry, described the transformation in in, in a collection of essays, about 20 essays. They described the transformation of a small prairie town into a cosmopolitan urban center in one generation. In fact, the population jumped uh, from the most dramatic jump was 1900 uh, to about 1901 to 1911 and population doubled 
a thousand percent from 4,000 to 44,000. So this is the story of a a community which is just coming into its own. And the various topics discussed in in the conference and in the papers cover the whole gamut. This is really new style history for Calgary. This is uh, looking at class, uh, uh, feminine, uh, women, women's issues, uh, uh, ranching, of course, uh, urban development, city planning, it, uh, religion. It's covering all aspects. It's a really a step, big step forward for Calgary history. And I was there. I just arriving before the conference and was a beneficiary of that volume giving me good orientation when I arrived here. Now, the old orientation, the old interpretation was quite obvious because it was all <laughs> in a mural at the Calgary International, not International Airport then, but the Calgary Airport in 1974 um, actually had the mural. Uh, it had There had been uh, some renovations, however. The mural was temp- was taken down, um, but it was back in 1978 with the new renovation. But um, it had been in place originally from 1958 on. It is very important, and in the text, accompanying the text, there's an image of it. It's uh, a mural by Don French, who's an Alberta artist, and it showed the perception, really, of history at the time. And it's, it's a, a perception of uh, great men, um, there are four figures. Um, there's Colonel McLeod, the Mountie, um, superintendent of the Mounties. There's Father Lacombe, Catholic missionary, John McDougall, uh, Methodist or United Church minister, missionary, excuse me, and um, an unnamed settler, and Crowfoot, the great Blackfoot chief who made Treaty 7. So but essentially, it's just a, it's, it's a white man's interpretation of history, and this is the mural. This is this is really the way it was when I came. The conference would make quite a few differences. Now, there was another another appointment in the summer of nineteen seventy four, in addition to yours truly, and it was a very important figure in Alberta, an extremely important figure. His name was Grant McEwen. He was the real thing. He had just been retired as the lieutenant governor of Alberta. Previously to that, he'd been mayor of Calgary and an important legislature in, the, in Edmonton, as well as an agricultural expert, a professor at University of Manitoba. Very distinguished career. Grant loved writing, and he loved history. The university appointed him on his retirement as lieutenant governor. They appointed him a professor, and he would teach a course on the exploration and settlement of the Canadian prairies. So I start with Grant, quite ridiculous, really, the neophyte and the seasoned gladiator. I read Grant's book that very first winter, early 1975. It was called Calgary Cavalcade, and it was dedicated to the Northwest Mounted Police, who had founded the city of Calgary in 1875. So it's 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 a second, it's a, a, a another edition of his original book. It came out in 1958, Calgary Cavalcade, and I read it. Now Grant was extremely well qualified for this topic of prairie history. He'd lived through the entire prairie experience. He's born in a farm and raised farms in Manitoba and then Saskatchewan. He'd gone on to university, uh, graduate training in agriculture. He went to the Ontario 
uh, Agricultural College in Guelph and then University of Iowa. He was an agricultural specialist. That was his real field. However, he loved history. And at an early age, from an early age at the university, he gave public talks and wrote really with tremendous energy about prairie history. He had a great style, interesting anecdotes, great power of description because he knew the land so well. Well, Grant felt this history file was important. There was an urgency to it. He wanted the past to be known. Explained to his son-in-law, Max Foran, his daughter, Heather, married an Australian, Max, who was a teacher, very experienced teacher, who came after the, they, they married. They married here in Calgary uh, after meeting in Australia, and Max came and began his teaching career here in 1964. Well, Grant, very close to Max, and he told him that, in his opinion, nothing was being done to record the pioneer's stories, and that's why he explained his intense interest now, Max, uh, Max actually um, was so close that he, he did a fair bit of writing about his father-in-law, and uh, that really helps us with any appreciation of him. Well, I'd just like to push it a little further because it's such a contrast. Grant's style was so popular. He was an extremely successful prairie author. His bestseller, in Calgary was a wonderful book called Eye Opener Bob. It had come out about, well, late 1957. It had done extremely well. The Calgary Albertan newspaper published a particularly warm review, one which captured exactly what Grant had tried to do. It stated, old-time Calgarians will lose 40 years while they are strolling through this book. For them, it is a privilege. The younger generation and the newcomers have a duty to read it, for only thus will they know that 8th Avenue is hallowed ground. That's the main commercial street in Calgary, in the old city. Grant arrived, he, he was the dean of agriculture, Manitoba, a very senior academic. He arrived in Calgary in 1951, and this energetic individual quickly became involved in community activities. Winning a seat on city council in 1953, then election to the provincial legislature in 1955. The 1955s were a decade in which Calgary changed enormously. I've touched a bit on this in episode one on George Sell. Grant arrived at a time when the huge influx of newcomers during the city's oil and gas boom pushed aside tales of early Calgary. He arrived just in time to record stories soon to disappear. Always must in history, appreciate the context. Grant arrives, there is no Glenbow Archives and Library, that wonderful repository of Western Canadian history, only began in 1956. Well, Grant was as productive as ever, even with his political career. And he shows, though, how doctor he was. He, three of his books in the early, um, in the from 1969 on, three of his books were touching upon Indigenous issues. Portraits of the Plains, 1971, was on First Nations. Métis Makers of History, 1980, was on the Métis. And he did a very popular biography of Tatangamani, or Walking Buffalo, a Stony Nakota chief. 
that came out in 1969. So he is in, he started off originally was very white centric. His book, The Sod Busters, for example, 1948 is dedicated to the individual farmers, the individual pioneers who opened up the prairies, not too much attention given to natives. Now it's totally different. It's total coverage. Max Foran helped his father-in-law with his last publication. And Grant kept going right to the end. He kept going to a few weeks before his death. His book, Watershed, Reflections on Water, is very concerned about the whole question of abundant water in the West for farming and for the human population and for livestock and all. He published his book, Reflections on Water, just and it came out um, just a few months after his death. Just and Max, his son-in-law, was instrumental in in guiding that one through. And Max, just uh, so so close to him. I'd like to say a few words about Max, and we'll get back to the <clears throat> the story of my time here. And I'd like to just say that Max, through his father-in-law, well, he's an Australian, but he's a very gifted writer, and he he, he was a teacher, mind you, and he's a principal of a school. But he found time for history, uh, thanks to his wife, Heather, and his two daughters, very supportive. Max's major book, Calgary and Illustrated History, came out in 1978. That's four years after I've been here. He was well-argued, superbly researched, and the product of his graduate studies at the University of Calgary. He did his master's and his PhD. He was a first PhD from the Department of History University of Calgary, and he's done as proud. So Max then, a friend, uh, Hugh Dempsey was a part of a trio, and we'd often go uh, get together and uh, for, for years, for decades, and uh, really was really great, very supportive. Now, back to my arrival. I'm getting a little bit ahead of the story. Back to my arrival at University of Calgary. I'd arrived in, uh, once again, in mid-August of 1974. I was lucky because the new social science building was had just been built, and I ended up well, on the grad si- on the sunny side. On the, I had a glimpse of the Rockies. Uh, the other side, you didn't have a totally uninspiring view, but I had a glimpse of the Rockies. I just landed at the right time, and uh, well, this is when I met George Self. He's still teaching for another two years. And uh, I just found it a very, very uh, good environment. Um, I should add, just by the way, just to give you a sign of the times, everything is context. In the office, on the desk, waiting for me, was an ashtray. That's the sign of the times. Unbelievable. Smoking still all over the place. I didn't smoke. Gosh. But I saved that ashtray. And when I retired in 2009, I gave it to a colleague, a new colleague, uh, to keep the tradition alive of this, this this object that was just a sign of the times of the mid-1970s. Well, life for me after 1974 in the university setting was just perfect. I mean, honestly, I couldn't believe it. Pinch me, I'm dreaming. I was being paid to do my hobby, Canadian history. Had great neighbors. On one side was Marion McKenna. She was an American historian, did her PhD at Columbia. She had studied, couldn't believe this, under Alan Nevins. Alan Nevins was a very celebrated American historian, uh, taught for years at Columbia. Marion at uh, well, her, she was the first woman in the department. That's how it was all male-dominated until Marion arrived, and she quickly became full professor. 
The book that had so impressed me about Nevins was Gateway to History, which is a guide to various styles of writing history, uh, done first in the late 30s, but brought out again in 1962. And I had read that as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, very impressed by it. And I liked very much that one, many, many details, just wonderful. The importance of good writing. That's what he emphasized, as well as research. Very, very strong in that. So Marion was a great, very supportive, very friendly, and uh, helped with American aspects of research questions. Uh, really delighted, uh, delightful person, and so pleased that she was on one side of my office. On the other side was Frank Ike. And Frank was a, a very, very good colleague. He was uh, very British. In fact, uh, just... Uh, Knowing him, you just you got a sense of fair play, and uh, he was unfailingly courteous. Um, he'd been educated at St. Paul's Public School, that means private school in Britain, a very distinguished school, and he'd gone on to Oxford, where he studied European history. Now, at first, I was dealing here with, I, my neighbor was the quintessential English gentleman, I thought, scholar. Appearances can be deceiving. Frank was really not English at all. He was born in Germany. He'd been sent by his parents to England at age 12 in 1935. His family was German-Jewish. And Frank then had come to England at age 12. He'd gone to public school at Oxford, served in the British Army in World War II. Um, his family was a later able to get to Britain. I, I shouldn't say later, but in the late 30s, able to get to Britain. But um, Frank grew up and learned learned his new culture, a very strange culture. He learned it so well, he could explain it to me. <laughs> in fact, he and his wife, Rosemary, were very close friends right, right to the end. Of, of Frank passed away uh, in the early up, up until his passing. He was an extremely good friend and very, very strong memories of it. Other good friends included really probably uh, essential to my work because I've been taught, I was, I was appointed to teach Canadian history, yes, with specialization in First Nations or Indians as they were called then and history of Quebec. As it turned out, history of Quebec, I continued to do that for 35 years. I always had a course in Quebec. But the one that grew, that just took off, was that on the Indigenous peoples. It just was sensational. And the gentleman who helped me a great, great deal was Ian Getty. Ian, I'd met and I interviewed in, in February of 1974, earlier in 74. And Ian had been very friendly. We corresponded. And then finally, I'm in, in Calgary and I had a spent the first night in a seedy hotel <laughs> and Ian said, come and stay in my place. He had a little house and I bunked in with him for a week until I got accommodation in a, in a apartment. I got a room in an apartment, uh, Triwood Plaza. I used to call it Plywood Plaza, <laughs> but it wasn't, that's mean because it was a good place. In any case, Ian was a very good friend and uh, right from the beginning. Others, Good friends included Howard and Tamara Palmer, and they really were good. They were having having me over Thanksgiving and and uh, whatnot uh, regularly, and really made me feel at home. Howard's uh, expertise was ethnic studies, and he was a pioneer in the field, very highly regarded. Soon he I, he got me involved in Canadian ethnic studies, the magazine, and Henry Claussen, 
my good friend, um, another Canadian historian, the one that had with Tony had been so instrumental in organizing the conference. Um, Henry got me in the Chinook Country chapter, so I became quite quite at ease very quickly. Now, Hugh Dempsey, very important, and I talk about Hugh. He's the subject of one episode. So need not stay with that topic. It's just instrumental, did so much for me. So it's just uh, my, my understanding of Indigenous peoples, I owe so much to him, as uh, and Ian, of course, and to others I would meet uh, in, 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 that, in, those early, in that early years. Some students and, and um, a gentleman that Hugh introduced me to particularly was helpful. That was Mike Eagle Speaker. Now, when I got to Calgary, and I explained this in episode on Longlance, episode four, I became enthralled with his story of this American, classified as colored, who had a, who had some Indigenous ancestry, looked Indigenous to non-Indigenous people, who had come to Canada, said he was a, a Cherokee. And, but in actual fact, all of this was quite constructed. He was very, very popular in Alberta, as the chapter episode uh, four explains, and a very good writer and all, and visited the Bloods, or Kanai, a number of times. And there he met and uh, befriended a young gentleman named Mike Eaglespeaker. Mike was the first blood to go off the reservation for education. He went to the Clare's Home Agricultural School, and Longlands encouraged him. Mike really was, he'd been to residential school, but he'd learned a great deal about his culture because he'd only gone to that school, uh, the residential school, St. Paul's, at the age of 10. Before that, he'd learned a great deal about the blood's history and ancient customs. His father, Eagle Speaker, had served as a young man in raids against the Cree. And he just, he learned, he knew the culture, and he also had the, the, the knowledge of English so he could communicate. And Longlands encouraged him. Many images of Mike remain fresh in my mind because I met him several times. I remember the time he demonstrated sign language and told stories about Nape to my history class at the university at the, at, in the, in the, just in my beginning in the mid-1970s. The proud look on his face, I remember that when, I, when he watched his family and friends dancing in their traditional costumes at Blood Indian Days. But above all, one picture remains in my mind of Mike. It was in the late fall of 1977. Mike, his wife and I, and their grandson, Dwayne, went down to the old agency where the St. Paul School once stood, the residential school. We slowly walked around, seeing the sites of the old buildings where the boys' and girls' residents were, where the school and the barns once stood. Then we visited the old cemetery and saw the graves, tombstones of former students of St. Paul's. When returning to the car, I turned and looked back. Mike was still standing by the cemetery. I heard him giving, giving a prayer in Blackfoot. It's that image that is left with me. Mike's prayer was given. With great, great, great emotion. That's the image that's left with me. Mike Eaglespeaker was a kind, considerate man who bridged both cultures, but who never left his own. Now that I had ample time, money, and encouragement from colleagues, 
I could pull go full blast on my existing research interest on gray owl, who I've talked about in episode three. John Tutusis, a Plains Cree, was his brother, adopted brother. I discovered that. And now I'm out in the West. I was able to visit John and went out to Poundmaker Reserve in Saskatchewan and visited John. We became good friends because he was indeed Grail's brother. They adopted each other very, they they met and adopted each other. John, what he he really didn't wasn't convinced that Grail was Indian, uh, but he admired what he was doing with 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 the animals. He was on their side, and saw great merit in his efforts to prevent the decimation of the beaver. So they gone along and um, respected each other, and. I got along with John. In fact, he visited Calgary on several, on two occasions, lengthy visits, and stayed at my place. John shared with me his outlook and made it quite clear he wanted to make the First Nations self-reliant and self-supporting. He had absolutely no use for the Indian Act, which had not talked about at all when the treaty, he was in the Treaty 6 area, was discussed. The treaty should have been the importance, not the, the, the idea of equality and self and just reciprocity. Instead, it was this Indian Act, this draconian act of 1877 that was applied. John objected to this. I really, again, the, probably the most vivid memory that I have of my visits was the last one in May 19, 1984. John visited and stayed at uh, my place. I married Nancy Townsend at that point, and uh, she, he stayed with us uh, for a couple of days, and uh, he was so excited. I, I wrote in my diary. Uh, I'm sorry, he came again mid-November 1984, and I wrote, wrote in my diary, John's very enthusiastic about self-government, told me again about San Marino. He had a copy of their treaty with Italy. He, San Marino's a tawny enclave in Italy, which has its control over its own domestic affairs, and Italy looks after defense and foreign affairs. It's, it's In short, it's really self-governing within Italy. John thought this was a great model, and he wanted, he loved the way San Marino could make its own laws, and he wanted this for the Plains Cree. He wanted this for the First Nations. He wanted them to return, the First Nations to be able to return to old customs. He had worked for my diary says he has worked for this for 50 years. Well, John was a, a great influence. Mike Eagle Speaker, John, and uh, other other First Nations people that I had the privilege of meeting. Worthy of note, a humorous note, is the letter John sent me on September 17th, 1983. Of course, I saved it. It's so good. John begins, how are you, Chief Redcap? Since you are my chief, I have to use your Cree name. Hope everything is going good. I earned my title for being John's train station porter, a red cap. Oh, John had a marvelous sense of humor. Well, eventually my biographies of Longlands, Grey Owl, and a third extraordinary character, Ontario-born Will Jackson or Henri Jackson, who became Riel's secretary in 1884-85, all three books came out. I called it, it was my trilogy of three prairie visionaries. Longlands, 
came out in 1982, Gray Owl 1990, and Henri Jackson in 2007. I found these people all intriguing. They all had colorful stories about their past, but they all contributed something far more than than many, many others. They were visionaries. Okay, I worked then on the Prairie Trilogy. I also kept up with my Mississauga work. Now there again, go to the episodes, five to eight. They're about the Mississauga, the First Nations people, the Anishinaabe or Ojibwe on the North Shore of Lake Ontario. And my my PhD thesis had been on that topic. And uh, I continued on. Um, I must thank my wife, Nancy Townsend. And we married in 1982. And my two sons, David and Peter Smith, who helped so much to make my first book in the Mississauga, well, certainly the second one. They were a bit young for helping with Mississauga, with the first book, Sacred Feathers, which is a biography of Peter Jones, the, the central figure, the chief and Methodist preacher in the mid-19th century. That they were not able to help much with, but they did with the second book, which was called Mississauga Portraits. They helped me because the digital revolution had begun. They helped me with innumerable technological issues. And as long as they were with me, I was invincible. But then, of course, we grew up, go away, I'm on my own. One happy consequence of working so long on Mississauga Portraits, which came out in 2013, was the digitalization revolution of the early 21st century. I benefited greatly from new research tools. Many articles from 19th century North American and British newspapers now became available on the web. With news, these new search engines, I could locate many new sources. I still remained very rusty, though, and needed help. But however, with my sons gone, I was cobbled together a help team, and the university was great. So I got through it. One important development was a conference that Ian Getty and I organized in 1977 that was entitled One Century Later. It was the 100th anniversary of Treaty 7, the treaty by which uh, uh, for Southern Alberta. And Ian and I organized a conference in mid-February that year. Lieutenant Governor Steinhauer opened our conference. It was an incredible success. I wrote back to my mother in Oakville, Late February 1977, we had over 400 at the opening session, 300 full delegates, and 500 at the banquet. At the head table, I sat beside the lieutenant governor himself. It was thanks to Ian's doing that the indigenous people participated so fully as they did. One third of our delegates were indigenous. I'd like to just on this personal level, uh, uh, tell you about the guest speaker, Harold Cardinal. And Harold Cardinal, in Seen But Not Seen, my really my real most important book, is uh, featured in one of the in the Alberta chapter. So more can be found there. But in a nutshell, Howard Card Harold Cardinal was a very competent, courageous uh, First Nations leader, very young, in his mid-20s, who had written a book, The Unjust Society, and spoke back and argued for the recognition of the treaties and the respect of the First Nations people. He was our keynote speaker. And I just include this because it's uh, great to be humble. And I'm certainly humble. I was in charge of the banquet. Here I am beside the lieutenant governor. Harold's on the other side. 
Um, and gosh, well, it's we're in this. Well, we have five hundred people. It's in the convention center. Um, actually, two blocks away from that crummy hotel I stayed in, uh, the King George, later the Carlton, which had been torn down in nineteen seventy-seven. Well, I guess it was still standing at the time of our conference. We'll forget that. It's on the side. In any case, there's five hundred people before me, and Harold's beside me, and. People are sitting down, and uh, Harold's getting really nervous, and I'm I'm uncomfortable. I mean, this is a big job for me. I'm just a foot soldier, and here I am with the lieutenant governor on one side and Harold's on the other, and Harold's getting really nervous. So I was I was really getting sort of freaking out. Well, then Harold said, "Aren't you going to have a grace?" <laughs> and I'd forgotten totally. Now, fortunately, Albert Lightning, a Cree elder, was seated just below in the uh, amongst that we were at the head table and just below us uh, visibly uh, very close to us was albert lightning and i just i didn't know albert probably met him once or twice but i just jumped out of my seat ran over and said harold albert will you please give him a grace and he he did thank heavens so we covered that one i, I missed that bullet but then i back at the head table and harold's well He's, well, okay, but now suddenly nervous again. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. With people are sitting down and all, and Harold says, um, Don, aren't you going to have a toast to the queen? <laughs> and I'm telling you, the respect for the First Nations, because the treaties were with the crown, is so, so, so high. So, no, I hadn't even thought of that one. But uh, up, up I go, and uh, a toast to the queen. Well, thank heavens, after that, it was all clear sailing. I could relax. Now, getting near the end of this story of my adventures, early adventures in Alberta, my second home, I'd like to describe the arrival of another colleague in Canadian history, Doug Francis. He'd, know, he'd known Howard quite well at York University and had done his PhD's, PhD work there. Doug um, came to Calgary in 1976. And Doug and I uh, got quite chummy, a lot of similarities. He was a great teacher. Um, I, I suggested, um, he certainly came aside on the, beside me on this one, the need for a reader. Because our students, there's three to 400 students in Canadian survey courses, and there's no books. I mean, they're books, but they're on reserve, and there's not enough. So we decided to propose a reader. And fortunately, a publisher... Holt Reinhardt and Winston accepted the proposal and brought out our selections and seven editions of them um, for two volumes, one before Confederation pre-1867 and one post-1867. These two readers were phenomenally successful. Seven editions from 1982 to 2009, and Doug and I were, were companions in arms on those. Well, these were successful, so what a, what a good idea to have a, a textbook to go along with them. So we started work on that, and we pulled in a, a friend of mine from Laval days, go to episode two, Richard Jones, and Richard became the tri part of the trio. He, he did the Quebec and the Modern Times, and it just was a great team. The book came out. Uh, the books would be published um, and in late 1980s, first edition, and continued to 2010. We did six editions of two-volume History of Canada. The titles are Origins and Destinies. Barbara Grant, Doug's wife, organized a wonderful book launch for us at the Wainwright Hotel at Harridge's Park when the first editions came out of Origins and Destinies. 
very, very clear memories of that wonderful afternoon. Well, now, lots of else, time short. I retired in 2009, but really didn't retire. Well, not really, because the only difference was there was no teaching, which I missed, and there was no marking, which I was ecstatic about. <laughs> That's the curse of teaching, the marking. Well, I could go full out on my writings again. And, uh, well, Mississauga Portraits was in 2013, and um, that, that's a post-retirement book. And then there was a second, because I had something still in me. And it is my, well, what do I say? Meisterwork, my, my, my major book. Seen but not seen, Influential Canadians and the First Nations from the 1840s to today. It's really, um, every, I gave it everything I could. I love biography as it humanizes the past. In Seen but Not Seen, I explore in chronological order the ideas and life stories of 16 influential Canadians. I selected these individuals to narrate the history of Indigenous peoples' marginalization. I'd made this study in order to understand myself why non-Indigenous Canadians fail to recognize Indigenous societies and cultures as worthy of respect. This interest in the topic extended back to my MA days at Laval and my PhD at the University of Toronto. Okay. In 1971, now this tie, there's two, Ontario and Quebec, uh, excuse me, Quebec's important to me, but it's really in my story. It's Ontario and Alberta. In 1971, I'm still resident of Ontario. I published my first academic article in Canadian history and Ontario history, the Journal of the Ontario Historical Society. My ties with the Ontario Historical Society remain close ever since. Indeed, Rob Leverty, then the executive director at the Ontario Historical Society, wanted to host the Toronto book launch of See But Not Seen in the Ontario Historical Society's historic Mackenzie House in Willowdale in North York, north of Toronto. But the one historical truth that all members of our noble profession all solemnly accept intervened. And that is simple. You cannot predict the future. The outbreak of the horrible COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, less than a year before the publication of the book, totally obliterated the plan of a book launch at the Ontario Historical Society headquarters. During the late summer of 2021, with COVID still very much at large, Rob Leverty and I began to discuss a follow-up to Seen But Not Seen. Within a few months, project, a new one had taken shape, a limited series podcast consisting of sketches of approximately 20 historical figures in Canada who whom I had researched in depth over half a century. The weekly series, in hindsight, follows the model of old-fashioned radio in its relaxed, accessible focus on different personalities in 19th and 20th century Canadian history. Wearing a set of headphones, just as I am at this very moment, wearing a set of headphones in Calgary in the extremely capable direction of Ontario Historical Society project manager and librarian, Sarah McCabe, I began recording weekly episodes in January 2023. The accompanying written reports for each episode took several days each to compose. Please note there's an oral recording and there always is a text 
with each of the episodes. The regular series ended or will end with this episode. Episode 21. It's the final wrap-up. It's been quite a journey. Very hard to conclude. I think just one statement. All my academic life, I've benefited from my two homes, Ontario and Alberta. Ontario made me, Calgary adopted me. The end of episode 21. It's been quite a journey.